Pulp MX Network production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I wanna say. A new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's Industry Seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires, Fly Racing, Blends All Racing Motor Oil, Works Connection, Plum Creek Funding, 612 Suspension, Fast Foundry, and Pro Glow. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Industry Seating Podcast. It's Wednesday, April 6th. Kind of a weird time to be doing uh, this podcast. Typically, it's on the weekends, but honestly, I just haven't had time. I flew back from uh, Portugal on Monday, and uh, yeah, I kind of had to drive to the hotel Sunday night. Left the hotel at 3.30 a.m. Monday morning and then embarked on a 23-hour trip home. So uh, I've just been trying to recover since then. But I did want to get this out. It was a pretty cool weekend in Portugal for MXGP. We had some uh, MotoGP action as well. They were down in Argentina. No Supercross action for the first time in several months. But the action is only getting more exciting from here because we have a bunch of Supercrosses in a row. Then that will spill into our Lucas Oil Pro Motocross season. MXGP carries on till September, motocross till September, MotoGP till November, F1 till maybe November. So we have a lot of racing to go and it's pretty cool, man. The, the weekends where we get three or four events going on is pretty wild. That's a lot to kind of take in and keep up with, especially for me. I will be going to most of these events, whether it's Supercross, Lucas Oil Pro Motocross or MXGP. For the next, I don't know, five months, uh, all my weekends are pretty much booked up. So trying to take a deep breath, recover a little bit, because uh, as much as I feel like I'm getting to the end of this run with Supercross, we're kind of just getting started. And that's a big change for me, where in the past, uh, I would take most of the summer off as far as travel try to recoup. Um, it's prime selling season for us for fly racing going in the summer with the new line. So it's going to be a difficult uh, few months for me as far as wear and tear. But it's, uh, yeah, it's up to me. I make my own schedule and it's, I don't have anyone to blame. So um, try to make the most of opportunities are in front of me. I'll have some more news on that front, uh, some developments in my life that uh, positive things I'm, I'm very excited about. Not really time to uh, let the cat out of the bag there yet, but um, stuff I've been working towards and uh, trying to, yeah, get myself into positions and uh, they're, they're kind of coming around. So before we jump into the racing action that we saw in Portugal, I want to thank the sponsors, Pirelli Tires, Guts Racing, Plum Creek Funding, Works Connection, Fast Foundry, Grant Stone Boots, Pro Glow Wash, and Fly Racing. And we're going to give away a set of Pirelli Tires today. I took some questions in this week, and, and we typically have the Pro Glow question of the week. That will continue. But for just this week, I'm going to let uh, Pirelli take over that role, and we're going to give away a set of Pirelli tires to a lucky listener. 
that was also kind enough to submit a question. So what happened in Portugal? That is uh, something that many of you may not know. Some of you watch, some of you don't watch. If you don't watch, this might be a boring podcast for you, but maybe this will be your opportunity to get more engaged and involved. NMX2, right? And for those of you who don't watch, there's MX2, which is your 250 class, and there's MXGP, which is your 450 class. And the MX2 class has a under 23 age limit. So they force riders out of the class and they force them up into the premier MXGP class after the age of 23. So you get a lot of newer faces that are coming out of the EMX class, which is kind of like the feeder series. You get new faces popping up year after year after year as these kids are maturing, they're developing, and the top, very top of the field starts aging out. Riders like Conrad Muse and a few others are going to be gone very soon. But you're starting to see riders like Kai DeWolf and some of the younger kids are starting to get better and better. Mikkel Harup, um, these kids are cu- kind of coming into their own. And you just see that development happen. You know, you see like a Jet Lawrence, if he was still in Europe, he would be in his prime over there only at 18. But he would have several more years of MX2 eligibility left. He's kind of the outlier. Most of these kids, when they start to get 19, 20, 21, you start to see them really take big steps forward. And it's fun, I think, to see this constant turnover go on because it's not just the same guys. Like in, let's say, 250 class in America, we've been watching Jeremy Martin win in this class for almost 10 years, right? And this is the 250 class isn't the premier series in America. It's, it's definitely not the premier series in Europe but we have the same faces running around the top five, right? And, and think back a few years ago, Marvin Muscan was battling in the 250 class at like 25, 26, 27 years old trying to win that championship. That's just not what happens in MX2 in Europe. It's, it's a bunch of young kids that, okay, some of them make decent money, but it's not, they're not making millions of dollars or over a million dollars racing the MX2 class. It is truly a development class and that doesn't mean they're not good that doesn't mean they're not crazy fast and talented and all that but it's the spirit of the mx2 class in europe is a little bit different than in the usa or maybe a lot different especially in the motocross series so as you know as for the top guys in this mx2 class it really comes down to tom vial who is your uh he's a previous world champion and yago geertz who they have been rivals for a few years now, but he hasn't failed to get that world championship won just yet. And Geertz, is, so Geertz is on uh, factory, you know, Monster Yamaha for the MX2 class. And Tom Vial is on Red Bull KTM at factory team for MX2 class. And for the last two years, they have really been neck and neck. Um, if you want, wanted to say who was going to win on any given weekend, it was likely going to be one of those two. And there were other guys that were involved, Thomas Kier Olsen and a few other guys. But in my mind, ever since Jorge Prado left this class, it's been between those two uh, to figure out who's going to win. And, and I guess Paul's Jonas, Paul Jonas was world champion in there at one point. But again, with this aging out process, those you know long-term rivalries don't really have time to develop because they move out of the class they get moved to mxgp before you can really get deep-seated you know i don't even say animosity but just just a rivalry side but we have one we have 
a full-on rivalry between Vial and Geertz. I don't think there's a lot. I don't think it's like distasteful, but I don't think they're, you know, like friends either. You know, when you watch their podium interaction, they have to shake hands and do these things. It's not like a warm embrace. It's very cold. It's very just professional, you know, shake hands, fist bump, whatever, and move on. Um, but that's the nature of championship rivalries. You know, go to any sport. You know, I don't, Fabio Quattararo and Mark Marquez are not close. Neither was Marquez with Valentino Rossi. Uh, if you go to F1, Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen are anything but friends, right? And that, that's just what happens at the top. You come back to the USA and Supercross and go back to like Villapoto and Dungy. They weren't tied at all. Stuart, Carmichael, Reed, all three of them disliked each other. That, and that's just how it goes. It's competitiveness. There are millions and millions and millions of dollars at stake for, especially in the U.S., and forget about F1 and MotoGP. That's a whole different level of money. But even in this MX2 class, it's still a lot of money. Like they, you know, tens of thousands of dollars per race to win. And championships, it's probably, you know, it's minimum 100 grand. I'm going to say 250 is, is a fair guess to win MX2 World Championship. I don't know. I've never seen an MX2 contract, OEM contract, but I'm just guessing it's got to be somewhere between 200 and 400,000. That's, that's my guess um, that I would feel pretty confident with. So again, you can be talking about life-changing money for these kids and that's going to create, you know, harsh feelings and you see aggressive riding at times, but um, there's a lot at stake. Now this weekend, Vial finally got a win back, and he had been struggling. You know, this is a guy who has won a world championship already and was my pick to win this championship. He, he should have won last year, in my opinion, but some really freak injuries struck him down. Um, I don't really think that they were necessarily his fault, but yeah, these, these things happen. So uh, Vial was my pick to win this title. I think came into this series thinking he was the best rider and that he was going to get it done. Now, it hasn't really played out that way. Uh, it's just been much more challenging than I think most people expected. He's had some really weird crashes, spectacular even in those crashes. And when you really look back over the first, what, four rounds we've had, it's been a lot of up and down. And that's not been Tom Vial, that, you know, if you want to characterize him, he has been the rider that's a great starter, manages races, kind of no mistakes, and just calm, predictable weekends. And I'm starting to think that it's the chassis, because if you look at Webb, you look at Muscan, you look at Vial, you look across the board at all of the new riders, or all the riders that are on this new KTM, it seems like they've had more uncertainty and more volatility would be a better word in their results and in their riding. Um, go back and look at some of the highlights of Vial's races this year, and it's been just wild crashes. And that, again, to reiterate, that's not him. That is just not what he has ever really done throughout his career. So this weekend was a re more of a return to what I expect from him. I don't know if it's, it was the track, it could be the dirt, it could have been some testing they had gotten done um, because he was kind of back to form a little bit in Argentina as well. But this is really, he's, he's getting back on track. And this is, these are positive signs if you're a Tom Vial fan. I still believe, though, after watching these first four rounds, that 
Geertz is going to be the man to beat. And I, this was not my take coming into the series. This has been my take, though, since this series has gone on. Like, I have really changed my tune as far as who was going to be the guy to beat. You know, because Geertz has really always been the guy that's been up and down. And, and there was more of that in Portugal. He crashed really hard in, in race one. Very lucky to not be injured. Race two, he runs away with the race and wins fairly easily. And that's kind of how his season has been. A lot of winning. But I, I think he is now your championship favorite. I just like everything that's happening with him. I think they've made significant improvements to his motorcycle for 2022, and you're seeing that play out. I also think he's maturing a little bit as a racer. Um, you know, he's, he's been near the front of this class since inception. And he, even speaking with Paul Malin a couple years ago, he was like, this kid's kind of next, right? And air quotes around next. Geertz will be a world champion eventually. He's going to get better and better. And it really hasn't come to fruition. There's been way too much up and down and you know, just unpredictability in his results and crashing and all sorts of things have gone wrong for Geertz over the last few years. But this feels like the year that it's all going to come together for him. It just, it feels like it's time. And I didn't necessarily expect that. I didn't really see any reason for that to kind that ship to kind of come in. It's a, I guess, poor cliche to use there, but whatever he needed to do to take that next step in his progression, it looks like he's doing it and has done it. Now, I am checking myself a little bit with that comment because just when I think he's got everything figured out, he flips over the bars, lands on his head, and you know has to overcome that in race one this weekend. But I still am much more convinced that this is his year than I was a couple months ago. I just didn't think that he was ready yet or ever would be kind of coming around on that take. So we'll see if that plays out. But I, I kind of have Geertz uh, pegged to, uh, to end up being world champ this year. I did make a note in here that some of the young guys are getting better. I kind of opened with that. But guys like Kaida Wolf, um, you know, Kevin Horgmo, I don't exactly know how old or young Kevin Horgmo is. But what a breakout ride for him this weekend. Fastest in all the, the practice qualifying sessions. Leads some of the, the moto. I think he would have probably been on the podium if he hadn't crashed in, in race one but just what a breakout ride you know and you see that with these kids right it's it only takes one weekend sometimes to gain that confidence and feel like they truly belong at the front and that's what it felt like for Horgmo I, I just didn't see that happening at all but here we are so nice job from him let's see if he can kind of carry that momentum and that confidence into Trentino when they uh, they go to Italy this week so jumping into the MXGP class, of course, this is where all the superstars of the sport are or will be. A lot of them are hurt right now. Um, but we still have a championship going on, right? Hurlings is out, Febra's out, and that really sucked some of the suspense out of this series. Make no mistake about it, that's definitely the tone when you go over there. Is like Everybody's like, damn, we had one of the best series ever in 2021, and now you go to 2022, and it's just not the same. That's unfortunate. It happens, though. Injuries happen in this sport. Uh, you know, we really need, for the storylines, we needed Prado to step up this weekend. We really needed him to get a win and get back in, right? Get back into championship contention, really become a factor 
because he had been kind of off. He had been off the expectation. He had been off of probably his own expectation of where he thought he should be in this championship. And I felt like if, if he wanted Geiser to take him seriously, if he wanted the media to take him seriously, and if he wanted any realistic chance at crawling his way back into contention, he needed a win in Portugal, right? It's close to a home race. It's not his home race. There's uh, into Xanadu is in a couple months. That'll be his home race. But this is close enough. He only lives a few hours away. The dirt is very similar to what he's comfortable with. That red clay is very, you know, synonymous with Spain. And, and I'm sure that Jorge's spent a lot of time on tracks and dirt, just like what we saw last weekend in Agueda. So that coming off of a few lackluster events, I felt like he, he had to get it done this weekend. And he did. Okay. It, now race two wasn't that impressive in my opinion. Geyser seemed like he could have pulled away more at any time. He, he really looked like he was just kind of cruising, but in the end it was enough to get it done. He reduced the points deficit. He was standing on the top step of the podium and for his confidence, for sending a message to Geyser, for all those things, in the end, you said you needed to come in, and, or I did anyway. I'm sure he felt like he needed to come in and win the race, and he did. End of story, period, okay? Now, if you want to poke holes in that and say Geyser was much quicker in race two and blah, blah, that, that's all fine. All well and good and valid. But if you are, Tim, if you are Jorge Prado and you are you know, the gas gas team, Red Bull gas gas team that is run by the DiCarli family, you don't care about any of that because you need, you had a mission coming in and that was to win the overall, the win, the GP, and you got that done. So now you go to Trentino, which is a great track for Tim Geiser, and you've got to keep the, kind of keep that ball rolling. Now the inverse of all that, right, is, is Tim Geiser. Okay. He comes in, he has a big crash in morning warmup, probably wasn't you know, ideal for confidence going into race one. And then you see him be really patient and hesitant in race one. And I believe he was too patient. I think he waited too long to get going. Now, I think he's taken a lot of criticism for rushing things, getting into big crashes that could have left him hurt. And so I think he was in this delicate balance point of like the track was tricky he didn't want to push too much and crash, but at the same time, I think he waited too long to kind of kick it into gear. Um, I don't know, you know, it, it's a really tough equation to sort out. It's like, okay, when do you go? And Paul Malin and I were talking about this mid-race. We were watching his lap times, and I kept saying, it's going to happen. At some point here, you're going to see him flip a switch and just take off. And it, that did happen. I've, I've seen him do it a, a lot over the course of his career. And it's like a, a very subtle hidden signal that some at some point he's like, okay, now I gotta go. And you'll see him start turning in his fastest sectors, which will turn into his fastest lap times. And he'll start bringing that gap down. Well, he did that in race one. He just ran out of time and he left it too late. I think he overestimated his ability to bring that gap down when he really needed to. And he just, again, he just ran out of time. So for race two, I think he understood how that went and he made it happen much more quickly and, and really dominated the race. Um, when he was riding off the track in race one, he was frustrated. He was, you could tell he was pissed off and 
watching him ride off the track, I'm like, he's going to come out and he's going to win race two. Convincingly. I could just see it in his mannerisms that he knew that he should have won that one and he waited too long and he wasn't going to make that mistake again. And, and that's what happened. I, I'm not saying that I can predict everything, but I could see that one coming. And I told Paul, I may have mentioned it on the television broadcast. I don't remember, but I felt like he had a very strong chance to go one, one on the day. And it was through his own mistake and, and his own uh, overestimation of his ability to close the gap down. And I think also he underestimated how difficult it would be to pass on that racetrack. So um, in the end, a good day for Geyser. Solid points. Keep the ball rolling. Keep the red plate. You're, and, and really, you're, if you're Geyser, you're fine with keeping the status quo, right? You just click off events. You keep a decent points lead, double-digit points lead. You, when the great days happen and you can really gap the points, awesome. And on your bad days, if a bad day is a 3-1, okay, like <laughs> no problem. That's your, if you can make your bad days a 3-1, you're going to win this championship with a couple rounds to go. That would be my prediction. So I don't think there's anything for Geiser to worry about. He's going into a track that he has historically been great on in Trentino. A lot of his home fans come over uh, from Slovenia for this particular race. He'll have what they call Geyser Corner, and it'll be loud. He'll be pumped up and want to win. And, uh, yeah, things are, things are looking good for on, uh, excuse me, Honda HRC and Tim Geyser. Uh, Tim Bogers, Tim Bogers, why did I say that? Brian Bogers would truly a great ride. Um, I would have never saw that ride coming. You, if you would have told me he would have got on the podium this weekend, I would have said, well, okay, was it muddy? Did we have a bunch of injuries? Was there a first-term pileup? Like, what led to that Brian Bogers podium? Because I would just not have thought he was capable of a normal day getting on the podium. And that, that's, I guess that's my fault. I was just wrong in my assumption that he was not ready for that type of day because he was great all day. He was great in qualifying practice. He was great in the first moto. I think he set the fastest lap in, in race two. Um, so there's really nothing to even question. He was just fantastic all weekend. And that's coming off of a hurt shoulder in Argentina. I don't know if it was dislocated or separated or what, but he had a significant shoulder injury in Argentina. Two weeks later, he comes back and gets a podium overall. Just incredible job from him. Congratulations to him and Tim Mateus and Standing Construct Husky and everybody involved. That's a really great result. Jeremy Sewer. I don't even know if he should have been racing, to be honest. Um, I spoke with him on Sunday morning, and he still looked like he was having ill effects from a, a big crash in Argentina. Um, but having said that, that was his 150th GP in a row. Now think about that. That means he has not, I know how simple that sounds, but he hasn't missed a GP in years, okay? 150 in a row. And myself and Lewis Phillips and a few other people were kind of joking around, like, you got to go for 200 now. And he's like, that's three more years of racing without missing a race, right? So he's like, there's no way. And I'm like, well, you would, you would have never thought you'd get to 150, so why not? Um, anyway, not his best day. I thought he did a great job of just kind of fighting through what he was dealing with because he just didn't look right. 
you know, he could, you could tell he was still a little slow and processing information wasn't quick, right? Cause he had a, he had a pretty heavy concussion in Argentina and I think he was safe to ride. I just don't think he was necessarily a hundred percent. And it's a lot to ask to race at that level with those guys on that tricky of a racetrack when you're not a hundred percent. Glenn Koldenhoff, uh, not a bad day, right? First moto was good. Race one was good. Uh, he showed signs of life, which is what you want, right? He was in podium contention all day long. He got, you know, nipped there at the end by Brian Bogers. But Koldenhoff is highly paid. He was expected to be a championship contender, and he needs to have podium-level rides, especially when you look at the field and Febber's out, Hurling's out, Cairoli's retired, on and on and on down you go. If Koldenhoff can't get on the podium in this dynamic, when do you expect him ever to, right? That's what I would ask. So he's stepping up. He rode better. He, you know, I think he led laps and that's what you're looking for from him. He won the qualifying race on Saturday. So if you are Louis Vosters, if you are Yamaha Motor Europe, you're Monster, you're all the people that contribute heavily to this program. Those are the steps forward you really need to see out of Koldenhoff to feel comfortable. And I'm not saying they're going to re-sign him. I don't know if they should, right? I, I can almost guarantee you he's not going to get the same level of contract that he's on right now. And I don't necessarily think he should either. That was a contract that was almost written for a championship winning rider. And that's what they expect. They expected him to be the lead Yamaha guy, lead them to wins, you know, put that Yamaha into the championship fight year in and year out. And that has, make no mistake, that hasn't happened. So that's the negative part. The positive part is this was a good weekend for Koldenhoff and it's something for him to build from and hopefully get some momentum rolling. Maybe he gets a race win. Maybe he gets an overall GP win because he desperately needs it in a contract year. Paul's Jonas, uh, you know, Paul's is coming off of injury, right? So he has not ridden much at all. I'm sure he's dealing with blisters and soreness and all kinds of things just from lack of riding time. He's probably still testing as well, right? Because remember, they switched from Gas Gas to Husqvarna for this season, right? And you could say it's all the same and it's all Austria and all that, but these bikes have subtle differences and they have their own tendencies. So it's not exactly the same. It could be close, but it's not exactly the same. And remember, new chassis and all that stuff too, right? There's, there's been some pretty big changes for the Austrian brands. But I thought it was a great ride from Jonas. I'm sure he's not thrilled about getting beaten by his teammate, but at the same time, this isn't a 100% healthy, ready to roll Paul's Jonas. He is a work in progress. And I think if he continues to improve, you're gonna see him be back on the podium sooner rather than later. Uh, as far as guys that weren't there, let's talk about Cairoli and Hurlings, okay? And there's a lot of talk behind the scenes about do they end up in America for 2022 Lucas Oil Pro Motocross? Now, it's been the plan for months on months that Cairoli was going to race a few races. Now, that's not, it hasn't been publicly announced, but that's what's been going on. Tony wanted to race some in America this year for fun, right? He didn't want to have championship pressure. He didn't want expectations. He wanted to just enjoy summer here and race some races because he, he never really got to do that. He always pushed the American racing scene to the side in favor of chasing, you know, MXGP world championships, which is all fine, but this is now his time to enjoy it without pressure. Now, the question is, does Red Bull KTM allow him to continue to do that? 
continue with that plan or do they supplant that with a Jeffrey Hurlings that does want to go chase that Lucas Oil Pro Motocross Championship? Because Jeffrey is still injured, but he's going to be healthy enough to start at Paula at the end of May, okay? And you have to figure if he comes in healthy, he's going to be one of the co-favorites along with Ferrandis and Tomac to win that title. That's a big deal for KTM, right? Because if you take Hurlings away from this American championship, they may not win any championship at all in 2022. Like none. Vial, if Vial loses the MX2 world title, they're definitely not going to win the world championship in MXGP, in my opinion. I don't think they're going to win Lucas Oil Pro Motocross without Hurlings, and there will be some more development, developments along that line. I just don't see it happening otherwise. So Kate, Red Bull KTM has a decision to make. Do they want to take Hurlings back to the MXGP series and win individual races? Because he will do that. He will win some events. But you are foregoing any chance at, a world, at any championship in the 450 class, basically, at that point. That's, that's my opinion. If they send them to America, now you have a chance. You have a chance at salvaging something from this 2022 season. Because Pit Byer, right, he's the boss. Okay, maybe he's more involved in MotoGP now. I get it. But still, he has to answer to Mr. Pyrin. I don't remember how to pronounce it. I apologize to everyone who is laughing at me trying to pronounce that. But the main boss at, you know, KTM, Husky, Gas Gas, in charge of all this, MotoGP, everything, right? Pit buyer is going to have to answer to him, Mr. Pyrin, I think. And if he has no championships to bring to him, like, you know, how did you do this 2023, 2022 review and you got, you have nothing like no championships to show for all this money spent, all these resources invested and all this effort. That's tough. So if I'm pit buyer, I'm looking at it going, man, we got to get hurlings over there because at least we have a chance to win an El Lucas Oil Pro Motocross championship in America. That would be something to hang our hats on. Hurlings is going to get crazy publicity and headlines if he does that, right? And that could be worth it. Just that alone could be worth it. The All that press and spotlight and all that going on could be worth it alone in my eyes. So that's kind of how I'm viewing it. I think it makes all the sense in the world to send him to America, given the injuries, given, you know, he's, he's out of it for MXGP World Championship, in my opinion. But you could completely change the narrative on this season by sending him to America for 12 rounds of Lucas Oil Pro Motocross. I don't know how it goes. You know, I'm sure Cairoli is in the mix here too, trying to be like, hey, wh what about me? Like, I, I had a plan here, you know, and I don't know where he ends up in that, all those chess pieces moving around. Um, Cairoli is one of the best guys in this sport, and I hope he doesn't get screwed in this dynamic. Um, but there's a lot happening behind the scenes with that. And, and I don't believe any of it's been decided yet. I think it's all still to be decided over the next few weeks. But it's got to happen soon because there's a ton of planning. And, you know, Hurlings is going to have to get over here and test. And he's going to have to ride a production chassis, which is another big part of this. He can't run. He can't, he's not going to have his pick of a bunch of different frames to use each weekend, right? He's going to have to do a, a bunch of testing on the production chassis to get dialed in. So whatever happens, I think is going to be decided pretty quickly. The last note I had on, uh, on MXGP was if you notice Prado, if you watch the races, Prado had his hat on backwards 
on every podium interview, every time he was on TV. And that's usually a sign of something, right? He is trying to not display sponsors for a specific reason. And I won't say what or why, because I don't know. But something was going on there. Where there's smoke, there's fire. I mean, rule number one is put your hat on so you show your sponsors, right? And he put it on backwards specifically every single time. So something is brewing underneath the surface there. It, he's, I think he's unhappy with someone or something or some dynamic with you know one of, if not the key sponsor of his team. So just something, I don't have any information. I'm not holding out on you, but I do know from being around this and hearing whispers and all that, there's something to that whole situation. Really quickly on MotoGP, um, you know, pretty interesting weekend. I, I was cheering for Alicia Spargaro, not so much because I'm a fan of him. I'm a little bit neutral on him. I have, I think he freaks out on his team and, and other riders a little bit too much. Um, you know, he's kind of a hothead. So it wasn't so much me cheering for them or him as much as it was cheering for Aprilia, right? They're the underdog. For them to go win on that stage is a huge deal. And so I was more cheering at the, the long-awaited result and effort and all that time and money spent kind of came to fruition finally for them more than him. Um, so, so kudos to all them. That, that had to feel great, and I'm, I'm sure they celebrated long into the night in Argentina and uh, pretty awesome. I was bummed Marquez wasn't there. I think we see him back at the next round. Um, but yeah, I, I think he brings so much to the series and to not have him, it, it waters it down. There's no other way to put it. The series is just not as good when Mark Marquez is not in it. The, you know, it's just that simple. So Quartararo is still my, my pick to win the championship. I think he's just going to be consistent and hang in there and he'll win a few rounds because this track was not good for the Yamaha at all. They struggled all weekend long, but there will be rounds that are. And they go to Coda this weekend. I think he'll be pretty good there. If Marquez shows up, I think Marquez wins, right? He's almost unbeatable in Texas. But I just think that week after week, these guys are going to be up and down and crashing. And guys like Bagnaya and all these guys are having horrible seasons. Quartararo is just going to hang around, win when it's time to win, stay in the top five, six, seven on the bad days. You know, he won't throw it away. He won't DNF. He won't get 15th. And at the end, like we're going to get halfway and we're going to go into the summer break and you're going to look up and, and Quartararo is going to be in the lead. And you're not going to be quite sure how it happened. It's just going to be kind of him winning the battle of attrition. That, that's really what I think happens. Now the outlier, you know, uh, situation or possibility there would be Marquez. If he comes back, and he can find his old form and get on a winning streak, the door's open because none of these guys have been hot enough to really rack up a bunch of points, right? They have left the door open because, you know, Bastianini's killing it, then he's terrible. Quartararo hasn't been great. Bagnaia has been awful. Um, it, it's just been this really unpredictable group inside the top 10 and out. Paul Spargo, good and bad, like, right? There's been no real trend from anyone where they would have gapped up the points. That's all leaving the door open for Marquez to reel off a bunch of wins. And they're like, oh my God, Marquez is in this thing. That can happen. It absolutely can happen because these other riders are allowing it to happen, 
right? They're, they are the ones that are not making the most of the opportunity right now. So to me, those are the two possibilities. Cordero wins or Marquez comes back, takes advantage of all these guys being really inconsistent, racks up a ton of wins and podiums. And he doesn't have to win every time, but imagine if he stays on the podium every week for 10 rounds, right? And there's what? almost 20 rounds left. There's so much racing left. If he's just podium, 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 that will take, you know, the lead down to nothing in a heartbeat. So I could be way wrong. You could see Mir or Renz or I don't know, Bagnaya, Jorge Martin, take your pick of these guys could get off the slump, find their form and, you know, get to the points lead. I don't see it though. I just don't see that cutthroat competitor that will be just there every single time and put pressure on everybody else. I just don't see that happening. Um, I think it's going to come down to Mark bouncing back, which is a big tall task. I know that's, that's really stepping out as far as a prediction or a much more likely scenario would be Quartararo just, he's just there all season. And then, you know, at the end, it's just too much of a gap and the guys let, you know, they gave him too much opportunity and uh, he is your back-to-back world champion. So that's it for this week. Thank you again to all of our great sponsors, Pirelli, uh, Guts Racing, Plum Creek Funding, Works Connection, Fast Foundry, Pro Glow Wash, Grant Stone Boots, and Fly Racing. Thank you to all of them for making this possible. I will do another podcast, so it'll be two this week after St. Louis. It's probably going to come out on Sunday morning. I'm going to try to knock that out. And uh, yeah, I'm going to Pulp Show on Monday for the 500th show with Carmichael and McGrath. So that'll be awesome. I just want to get, uh, get this one out quickly on Sunday morning and get it over to you guys. So check that out. Thank you to everyone from listening. And uh, yeah, hopefully I can get some rest between now and then and not, yeah, fall down face first from all this travel. Thanks, guys. See you.